Welcome to the Breakthrough Podcast. I'm J. Paul Frydenmaker, and I am amazed by all you folks who do fundraising, inviting generous people to resource causes all over the world. In the Breakthrough Podcast, we interview high net worth givers globally to listen and learn about how we as fundraisers can do our best work in inviting people to the party. Thank you for listening in. Folks, I am so excited that we have Michelle Benson with us today. She's coming to us from Surrey, England, and has worked in fundraising for charitable causes for nearly 30 years. This is going to be one of our talking shop episodes. We're going to learn something today. In 2012, Michelle jumped to the other side of the fence for a bit. She joined a trust fund to help increase innovation and collaboration in grant making. And it was there that she witnessed the stark disconnect between fundraisers and funders. So to help address that issue, she launched an online training company called Culture of Philanthropy in 2018 to help charities be found by high value partners, such as philanthropists, their advisors, corporates, closed trust funds, all of those types of people. You heard me correctly. She helps charities to be found. We'll definitely hear more about that in this episode. She follows a simple notion in her coaching. The more fundraisers work in sync with the funding world, the more enjoyable and rewarding their job becomes. Amen to that. Michelle has chosen to feature Milton's Cottage Trust as the official charity sponsor of this episode. And I had a great conversation with one of their trustees that you won't want to miss. That is an amazing charity. We are honored to have them be featured. Best of all, Todd and I did this interview while I was in the middle of a family camping trip. So of course, that's where we're going to start. Thanks for listening in. I am sitting here in my car. If it's not patently obvious, my steering wheel is right here in front of me, but I'm looking <laughs> at the ocean because we're camping right now. It's our last camping trip of the summer because the weather is going to turn and, uh, and we've been kayaking, we've been having a blast, but have you had a camping experience or backpacking or something where it's just gone wrong? You know, you've headed out, you've got high hopes and just two, two of them. But more, more the, the one more recently literally was this last weekend. It okay. was a uh, uh, dad and kids kip at, at uh, for uh, a kid's school. But the, the real fun moment was the, the before we had the dad and, and kiddos uh, kickball game, which is epic. Now. Okay. It's, it's the fifth, <laughs> fifth time we've played this game. And the dads always kind of have to try to win. Right. Yeah. I literally was running to home plate. I slipped and fell because it was a little bit. I, I injured oh, no. my knee and re-injured my shoulder. And I'm Todd. <laughs> Todd, you're getting old, buddy. I'm what are you trying rolling to do? on the ground? But I got to win, Jay Paul. I can't stop. Oh. <laughs> so I'm crawling into home plate. My daughters are thoroughly embarrassed, and of I still course. get tagged out. I didn't. I didn't actually make it home. And so then oh, my gosh. night of sleeping was was miserable. My camping mat and deflated seven times. I slept maybe forty five <laughs> minutes. It okay. was it was miserable. So 
I, oh, I hope your goodness. camping experience is better than mine. Well, this was, one has been, miserable. yes, this one has been very good. I showed you guys some pictures. We went kayaking and saw some sea lions. I think my my experience gone wrong. My dad and I had a dream to go to the Grand Canyon together. And Ooh. so now I was maybe 10 years old. And so my uncle was in the Jeep ahead of us. We were in our car behind him. I think a water hose broke and we mm. were pulled off to the side of the road. My uncle did not see us stop. Oh, he no. went on to the Grand Canyon. My dad and I never made it. So that was my <laughs> worst experience. Yeah. You know what? Right. Well, you, you, you go. gotta, you gotta take the risk. You gotta go out and do an adventure. Um, but today, Todd, you and I are excited because we have our first, we're calling these talking shop episodes. Yeah. And so we have our first guest today, Michelle Benson from the UK. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to be here. And um, great to see you in your car. Of course. That's right. Yes. Now, do you and go camping? the beanie cap. Like, we've got the beanie going on. So you got to get the full <laughs> I picture. It's I know. homeless I'm not Jay sure. Paul mode right now. Sometimes I show videos of these podcasts. I may have to to lay off this time. But, <laughs> but Michelle, do you go camping? Michelle, have you done, has this been a part of your history or um, experience? I did as a child, but it's funny because my I've got three teenagers. And okay. this summer, our eldest son said he was going to a festival, so we had to buy him a tent. So off we popped okay. and bought a two-man tent, nice and simple. He went to a three-day festival and came back without the actual container. So we bought oh, half no. the tent back, so that's okay. okay. And so then two weeks <laughs> yeah, later, our second son said, I'm going to a festival, so I'm gonna use the tent. So he had to make do I without the cover and blah, blah, blah. And then he's <laughs> come back without the pegs. <laughs> so, oh no. So we're not, <laughs> so we're not in the blood. Right. Well, no, that's right, not yeah. in the blood, okay. <laughs> I love it. Well, Michelle, tell us a little bit about your family and just what keeps you busy these days. Uh, well, I, my partner and I of 24 years have three children, three teenagers. Ooh. We live in Surrey, just outside London. Uh, and because of the COVID, back, our, our children are 19, 17 and 16. And because of COVID and the backlog, our children haven't learned to drive yet. And so okay. finally... 17-year-old son has now got a driving instructor, which has been, you know, like nice. a miracle. And so, so that instructor is not you? No, no we're well, not initially. Okay. <laughs> not initially. And we recently went out and bought a second car because we figured we'd rather hit they drive. Well, first of all, our car's an automatic and everybody learns to drive in a stick in England. Yeah. Oh, no way. And so I had to get back into a stick and then read to teach myself how to learn to drive a, a <laughs> manual, which is fine, manage that. Um, and I have to say, I never realized how terrifying roundabouts oh. are in this country. Oh, yes. <laughs> you don't That's have roundabouts right. in, in America, right? You don't we have a few. We have a but, few. But, but so I, I actually I live actually in the roundabout roundabouts. capital of the world. Hamilton oh, County really? has more roundabouts. Like, we're we're obsessed oh, with wow. them. Wow. I've only screamed once <laughs> in sheer terror. <laughs> That's winning in my book right there. That's right. I, I, Screamed a few more times training my boys. Yeah. Now, now, Todd, have you ever driven like in the UK or Australia or South Africa? 
I I did once on the on the uh, the opposite side of the road in the Caribbean. Yeah. We, we were okay. uh, at one time. Yeah. It, it throws you. It throws you. But here's what I found is like after about maybe 10 minutes, your brain, like our brains are remarkable. They just switch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. I drove in and Rome. So, I don't know if you've oh, ever you been did. to Rome. It's, it's you get yeah. in yeah. the car and it's a competition. It's so like, come on. And, yeah. then, and then you're in the car. running. And then you think, it's the best thing ever. That's Great. my style of fun. So, Michelle, what, what ke- we got to get to the second half. What, what keeps you busy these days? So, I started my own thing, as it were, back in 2018. Uh, and that's picked up and it's certainly keeping me busy. So, I've worked in fundraising for about 30 years. Um, well, almost 30 years. I initially, on the fundraising side, started off as a corporate fundraiser and then moved up to a fundraising director, so covered all income streams. And then in 2012, I hopped over the fence and started working for a trust fund. So I, was, I switched to the funding side of the fence. And what was really interesting about that was I started, in that trust fund, I started to do joint funding with other funders. So we created co-funds with other trust funds, corporates, uh, philanthropists and their advisors. And so we had different, different, different funds we created. And what was immediately noticeable was every time I created a joint fund, the partner would say, I'm happy to do a joint fund, but on the proviso, we have a closed application form. No applications, it's got to be closed. Now, the trust fund I was working for... Does that mean you only invite people? Yeah, Is that yeah. what that means? Okay, yeah. gotcha. No, yeah. no unsolicited us. So it's, yeah. we find you, you don't come to us. Now, at yeah. the time, I was working for a trust fund that was open. And so we did invite applications. And every morning, the, the, the team would turn up, but two colleagues would turn on their computer, and a tsunami of applications would come through. Wow. 50% didn't meet our criteria, right? but right. you don't know that until you read it. Then yeah. 25% of them had a copy and paste job from every other proposal they've ever written, so it didn't right. make sense. And then 25% were fantastic, well-written, well-thought-out, and but you didn't know that until you waded through the 75%. Of course. And it's yeah. not, it doesn't make a happy job. <laughs> not happy. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, so, and so eventually our, our, the, our co-funders all said, we've got closed applications. And, and so eventually we said, okay, after lots of debate, we're going to close the application process. So we closed the application and we turned around to our two colleagues and said, you've got 15 million pounds to spend. Please uh-huh. go shop. And so yeah. they said, mm-hmm. well, you know, there's this thing called the internet. You can find things, you, you know, you can find yeah. what you're looking for. Sure, and then, sure. So you could look up things on the internet. You could talk to other funders. You could talk to our current grantees for recommendations. And not only did our colleagues uh, were much happier and much more effective, our pipeline was fantastic. And we were finding, and everybody, went, when I tell this story, people will say, yeah, but if you're, that's okay if you're a really big, well-known charity, but what about the tiny guy? If we right. were only interested in really big, well-known charities, we wouldn't need two people doing a load of research. Mm. We could just come up with those off the top of our head, right? The reason right. they were researching was because they were looking 
for the small and the medium and the diff and the different models that we wanted to invest in. And what was really interesting from my point of view, though, I come from a fundraising background where I was yeah. constantly trying to knock on doors, get in front of people. Right. And then when I was on the funding side of the fence, it was really apparent that it was, if we open the door, we're going to get bombarded. So what yeah. we'll do is rather than just react to what comes at us, we will proactively go out and find. And that's when it really hit me. If I ever go back into fundraising, my job is to be found, ah, not okay. to chase. <clears throat> yeah. Because I know where they're looking. I should be putting myself in the pathway of where yeah. people are proactively looking rather than constantly trying to knock on a closed door. And, yeah. the, and the distinction for me as well was when people try to knock on a closed door, you enter our world, our funding world, as the problem we're trying to solve. When right. we find you, you enter our world as the solution we're looking for. Yes. Yeah. Massive I love switch. that. Yeah. Massive huge switch. And let's put a pin in that because that now, something just clicked in my head. That totally makes sense for how you are advising fundraisers these days on LinkedIn. So we're going to come back to that. But I wanted to ask you, Michelle, like I've, I have done some fundraising internationally. I've done some fundraising in the UK. Most of it has been in the US. What is the culture of fundraising in the UK? You know, you've been at it for 30 years. Like, is it, is it sort of like being a second class citizen to be a fundraiser? Like, yeah, t talk to us a little bit about the culture in the UK. Actually, it's really interesting because I think it's extremely similar to um, America, Canada, uh -huh. New Zealand, Australia and UK. Because since yeah. I've been doing a lot of work on LinkedIn, I'm now talking to lots of different people from around the world and the same issues and the same problems keep coming up. And I think fundamentally, I think um, the, the fundraising world externally has changed dramatically but the internal fundraising department of a charity has stayed the same. And the reason the struggle is increasing is because the, if, you, if, your work, if your environment changes and you don't adapt, you start to struggle. And the less yeah. you adapt, the more you struggle. And so I think there's a couple of things. I think internally, I think for non-fundraisers, it's viewed as a much more simplistic job, simple job than it is. There's loads okay. of people out there that, have, if you just got out there and asked them for money, there's loads of people that would give us money. Why the hell, you know, so, so this yeah. expectation that, you know, there's just loads of people that you could just easily get in front of. And if you could just get in front of them and ask them, they'll be happy to do it. The speed at which people are willing to give. You know, obviously we know as fundraisers, we're looking to develop relationships. We, we want to build up, all of that human stuff takes time. We don't run right. up to someone and say, hey, you've got a checkbook, 10 grand, thank you. <laughs> Ching -ching. Yeah, and also this, this, for me, the thing that really, really comes across is, I don't know where there's this shift that's happened because the more desperate things get in internally and the difference between the external and the internal world, the more donors are seen as prey more than people. And it's that, and not from the fundraisers, but from the pressure 
of, you know, I had a, I was speaking to a, a fundraiser this week and she said she's been working with a CEO who's been driving her a bit potty anyway, but she walked into an event with him and he looked at her and said, okay, which one do you want me to hit up? Who should, right and then on. he says something like, who should I sweat? And yeah. she was just, she was just cringing thinking, please don't yeah. hit or sweat or whatever. The, yeah, it's always like, you know, <laughs> right. like, oh, whatever you want to do to these people, stop it now. We Actually. call that we call that hot boxing. I have a funder <laughs> friend of mine who will go into an event and he'll come up to me and he goes, man, I just got hot box. Which means, you know, somebody was hitting him up or making him sweat. So And I, and I think also it's very similar to America, actually. The, the majority of philanthropists that I know and have worked with or do work with, are fundraisers themselves. Yeah. So when you're going up, so if you're a CEO or a trustee or, or like a project worker and you're going, you're in your head, you're thinking, this person is a donor. What you don't right. know is, yes, they are a donor, but they're also a fundraiser. They're, yeah. they're, they're out there fundraising for various causes. So they're, and because of that, they're very sensitive to, mm you know, buy me a drink first, please. <laughs> Before you reach into my back pocket, come on. You know, and, and so, uh, you know, that, that sensitivity, I think, is a, a lot higher. So you, you hinted at that idea of like a, almost a dating analogy, right? Of I needed a drink first. And then uh, one of the pieces I've followed with you on LinkedIn is this idea of the speed of the ask. Um, te- tease that out a little bit, because there is this idea that I just need to get in front of the right people make it super simple, it's non-relational, it's transactional. Yeah, I think ultimately the donor always has their own timeline. And, that, and mm. basically the, 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 the rule of thumb, as it were, is to really try to understand your donor's timeline and work with that timeline. Because yeah. the more you try to force that, the more yeah. you violate trust. And mm. actually, the whole point is you're trying to build up someone's trust. And so the more you're not listening or trying to skirt around or, you know, or, and, and that's not just major donors, of course, that's on all levels, isn't it? In terms of, you know, if you're a CSR person and someone goes over your head or, you know, all, all that business. So that kind of, um, this pressure of saying, we have a target that we need to reach at a certain, you know, by the end of year. If that's out, the more out of sync you are with your donors, the more all the desperate tactics and all the like, you know, bad fundraising comes about. The more in yeah. sync you are with your donors, and the more realistic your targets are, because that's the other thing. I think um, I, uh, you know, obviously targets are often set without the fundraiser in the room. So, i.e., the budgets right. are set. Yeah. So, yeah, right. you know, there's, there's huge optimism <clears throat> within the finance department that, you know, let's, and they're, they're always, <laughs> and every charity is always saying, you know, every, yeah. day, every job description you see, it says, come in and triple the, t-, you know, we've got to triple our income in the next three years or double the income right. in the next three years. That, that's typical, right? So there's this kind of uninformed optimism. Yeah. And then you as the fundraiser walk in with the informed pessimism (laughs) yeah that's good that's good i love it yeah yeah that's right let's uh let's come back to linkedin michelle so i found you on linkedin and your profile says 
helping charities to use LinkedIn to fundraise from high value partners. I love this. And LinkedIn has changed a lot in the last even five years, you know, plus. But so tell us about how you do this. How do you help charities to use LinkedIn for this? The wonderful thing about LinkedIn, of course, is it's already gathered the, the audience yeah. that you want to reach. The other thing you love about LinkedIn is, is its mission statement is to connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. So its algorithm is, that's the algorithm's job description, if you like. Its job is to connect you. So offline, where the doors are locked and no one wants you to come in, online, the entire platform is designed to connect you, to find, connect, find, connect. So it does the opposite of the the problem you're trying to solve, as it were, offline. Um, The other thing is, when people are on LinkedIn, they've got their work mindsets on. They use it for work. They go on there frequently, they're thinking about work, um, and it's easy to connect with everyone. And and then, of course, there's huge leverage. So if I was trying to get, you know, um, a load of my, uh, philanthropists and their wealth advisors, I would probably be talking to people one at a time. Whereas if I yeah. go on LinkedIn and I put a post, I can reach hundreds of people or, you know, a comment yes. or a like, you know what I mean? So there's right. massive leverage. Um, but, but ultimately, the way LinkedIn is designed is if you and I sign up to LinkedIn, it says to us, fill out your profile. And why write, mm-hmm. I'm a fundraiser. So the algorithm okay. is charity. <laughs> and then somebody else comes along and says, I'm a lawyer. I'm a plumber. I'm a hairdresser. What LinkedIn wants to do is it wants to take us and put us in our individual echo chambers. Because it's so much easier to sell advertising to us if we're all together. Mm. Right. So it, mm. it, it basically encourages us to connect with our colleagues, start talking about ourselves. Where if you're a fundraiser and you talk all about fundraising, you're very interesting to other fundraisers. If I'm a lawyer right. and I'm talking about, you know, being a lawyer, I'm interesting to other lawyers. So it puts us in these little buckets so we can all sit and talk to each other and LinkedIn can advertise to us. So what I do is say, right, look at your newsfeed and people go through the newsfeed. Is it full of charities and colleagues and are your connections colleagues and blah, blah, blah. You are firmly in the charity um, echo chamber. I work with you to take you out of that echo chamber and put you in the funder echo chamber. So the first thing I do is change your newsfeed and there's various actions you can do to to get that done. So when you pick up your phone in the morning, all you're seeing is your potential audiences, um, posts, likes, comments. So A, it starts as brilliant focus group. B, just jump in, start chatting. Comment, like, yeah. get your face known, have a conversation, yeah. post in there, and then and then people come to you, because you're yeah. not just talking one to one; you're talking one to many. So, for example, I have a, a, a student of the, this week who's had a couple of um, direct messages from wealth advisors, and I think okay. she's got like two messages. She's over the moon, and it, and it's great because now she's got those meetings, and she wouldn't have met those people otherwise. In reali- realistically, you could also argue maybe 5,000 people saw that, those comments that she left and yeah. two have come to her. So even if the odds aren't great, for her, those two wealth advisors are now coming to her saying, 
I would like to talk to you. Are you available for a meeting? Yeah. Which is from a fundraising point of view is a dream come true. But what I also love for small teams is in the morning you can pick up your phone, like, comment, post, whatever. That's wow. sending virtual you into the virtual network of okay. LinkedIn. And then you turn your phone off and you get on with your day job. Now, virtual you is still working away and real use working away. Two use, one salary. So it's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and salaries are the biggest bill. It's the biggest bill right. for... So you can literally double your fundraising team by using LinkedIn strategically. Or you could pick up the phone, connect with a load of fundraisers, talk to a load of fundraisers, like and comment to a load of fundraisers, get back to work, one you, one salary. And that, that's the... Right. In your echo chamber, yeah. So how, how I'm fascinated on that. How how do you make that switch? Is that something you want to? I would love to unpack that. So if I'm sitting in there, and all I have is fundraisers in my feed, which I'm guessing is ninety plus percent of those that are in this world. How do you make that switch? It's the algorithm only cares about your attention, so it doesn't care mm. where your attention goes. If you want to watch, like, you know, if you go on YouTube and you want to watch cat videos all day, it's going to send you more <laughs> cat videos. <laughs> you know, who cares, right? <laughs> you get cat right. videos, I will sell you advertising. If that's going to get your attention, knock your socks off. So ultimately, it's your actions that determine. Your, your, everybody's news feed is completely unique to them, depending on their actions. So who have you connected with? Who, when you stop the scroll, um, who are you, what are you stopping on? What are you commenting yeah. on? What are you liking? So, uh, so basically, um, the more you start liking funders, funders stuff or connecting with funders, uh -huh. the more yeah. the algorithm goes, ah, so philanthropist gets Todd's attention. Let's send him more philanthropist. We know that makes him stop the scroll and makes him get glued to his phone. If that's what he wants, gotcha. that's what will serve him. So, and there's, and then you're, you need to, um, the way you set out your profile, there's a few other things as well. But fundamentally, your actions determine your newsfeed. Yeah. Now, Michelle, tell us how you engage people. We'd love to direct people to you. Do you have a course that you offer? Do you do webinars? I'm assuming you obviously will do one-on-one -on -one consultations. How do they find you and how do they engage you? Um, I, do, I run an online course. Okay. Um, which, you know, if you go to my LinkedIn profile, Michelle Benson, you'll yep. see it's all, it's all there. And we'll do links. We'll do links in the show notes. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, so I, I work on the funding side of the fundraising side of the fence. I, I mm -hmm. really focus on the LinkedIn. I actually started doing fundraising strategy and how to use LinkedIn was module three. And then uh, people, gotcha. could, okay. people would do this course and then come back to me and go, could you teach module three to my team? They would focus on that. Uh, yeah. And then module three, just kind of everybody was just like module three. So module three <laughs> kind of like became its own beast. Skip was. one and two. Just go <laughs> three. That's right. Just go three. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, for curiosity's sake, what were modules one and two? The strategy and vision and yeah, and... yeah, yeah. It was basically and it was like, basically set. We don't need that. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. yeah, they couldn't care about that. You know, let's just get down to how do I get in front of funders? You know. That's right. Yeah. So that that is the the front end side is is helping change the feed, but then on an ongoing basis, you'd like and comment. 
it, to a certain extent, how, how do you coach them through the commenting, the liking section to help tailor the feed there slash the posting side? Which, which of those is more helpful to go into next? Is it is it how do they do the post and creating content, that piece or the engagement piece? Which is more important? I think it, it's a combination. Um, I think mm. that the most important thing is that you are consistent. So even if you said, I'm only gonna post once a week, <clears throat> if you're consistent with your posting, that's better than going crazy for six weeks and then leaving it for five months. And uh, then come, you know, right. So it's like the consistency is actually more important. Um, the other thing is a lot of what LinkedIn does is this is the beauty of it, it's reactionary. So Todd, Todd, if you and I connect for the next two weeks, Every time you like or you comment or you post or I, I do, you and I will get a notification of, so I would get a notification saying, Todd's just like this or Michelle, or you'd get a notification. So for two weeks, they just keep notifying. We'll get notified. So yeah. it means that if I've just connected with a funder for two weeks, every time they do anything, I'm going to get a notification so I can go in and like and comment and chit chat. So ultimately, yeah. I'm trying to... So, like, Jay Paul, you and I kind of met on LinkedIn, right? Right, right. And by the time you messaged me, I kind of felt I knew you because we'd been yeah, talking in the right. feed. A hundred percent. I know. It's, it's so funny. When we finally do get to meet, we're probably going to look at each other and go, we've met before, right? He's <laughs> <laughs> taller than um, I thought. <laughs> so... So Michelle, I have this same experience. You talked about you have really the privilege. You probably didn't plan for this and I didn't either, but the bulk of your career kind of on the front line, making invitations and inviting people to give. And then you had this opportunity to be on the other side. And I did as well. I, I worked for 10 years for a wealthy family here in the U.S. And you gain a kind of an empathy, don't you, for what it's like. Yeah. So tell us a story of maybe just an awkward pitch or ask whether it was when you were on the fundraising side, you can change names and faces. We don't want to embarrass anybody, but we do want to learn. So tell us, and, and maybe you can share one too that went really well. Both are great. The standout one for me was when I was working at a, a British charity called Mencap, which represents adult learning disabilities. And uh, there was at the time a children's TV program called Blue Peter. And every year they did the Blue Peter Appeal and it always raised at least a million pounds plus. And it was massively high profile and, you know, and, and it was also great because if you got onto Blue Peter, you were educating children about your cause. And so you, you know, it was, it's a future generation and all the, all the rest of it. So, so we got a call saying from another fundraiser, um, oh, were you guys on the pitch for Blue Peter? And I was like, no. And it turns out that they'd invited 70 charities on their long list, oh, but not adult learning wow. disability, because it wasn't seen as a kind of thing that they thought was appropriate for children for, for whatever reason. Um, so I contacted them and think, oh, maybe you forgot us. Anyway, managed to chat this woman up to put us on the list. She was fairly reluctant about it. Um, Anyway, 70 turned into 40 or whatever, and you go through the process. And then we, we were finally down to the, the last two. So we, oh, wow. yeah, okay. so that was, that was a bit of, you know, bit of a luck. So we were invited to the BBC to, they had a huge panel and uh, we, these, uh, us and the other charity would have to pitch as to why we deserve to be the people um, for the appeal. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, we started our pitch and we started to talk about, you know, the importance of learning disability and, uh, and um, children understanding learning disability. And a woman started to ask questions that were quite awkward and a little bit aggressive. And then okay. a man cut over her and answered for us. And then the next thing you know, they're also... One of the funders cut over yeah, you. Yeah, so if, yeah, there was okay. myself and two colleagues. And we just kind of looked at each other and thought, okay, well, we'll just be quiet now. Anyway, then, right. then this woman started to explain that, you know, it was inappropriate and really this is adult learning to, and it's not really children, it's not really a children's cause. Then the chap was saying, well, you know, before we did help the aged and that was not a children's cause. Yeah, and, and so all the politics started to yeah. play out in front of us at which point i looked at my colleagues they looked at me and we've all kind of like with our eyes just said shut up yeah <laughs> don't that's right well. <laughs> just go okay. and so we literally s stood there in silence for uh, probably about five minutes it felt like 45 minutes but um whilst a whole panel of people just had a big debate amongst themselves yeah as to why or why they should not support us. Anyway, the irony was we actually won the pitch. We didn't finish our pitch. We didn't even get, yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. even think we got a third into it. You won it in silence. <laughs> we won yes. it in complete, I won a, I won a 1.3 million pound pitch by not talking. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's delightful. So tell us a time then uh, on the, the pitch side where somebody felt blessed. Like how, how would you come in, give us a story where it went well and you actually had to say something? Um, there was actually, um, the one I really stand out was, I was, when I was on the funding side, we were pitched to and we were looking at investing into social enterprises. And we weren't looking for one, we were looking for several. And we had invited a whole bunch of people to come in and, and go through uh, what their social enterprise did, why, and, and we were looking to scale impact, so why they felt they were scalable. scalable. Um, and that was really amazing because you had a, one after another, you had founders of small enterprises. So that felt incredible because it was really personal and also, you could see the story. So one woman, for example, was a, a prison officer and she'd worked in prison for years and years. And she just kept on seeing the same families go in and out, in and out of prison. It's like the revolving door. And so she was just thinking, this is crazy. So she started her own enterprise of supporting people to prevent children of prisoners becoming prisoners, which was really successful. Yeah. But the most outstanding one was this woman that represented um, children with disabilities who was so nervous. And she just yeah. couldn't do public speaking. And she couldn't yeah. get her words out. She couldn't talk. And a couple of times yeah. she had to keep them leaving the room, having a sit down oh, and sweet. coming back. Yeah. And it was painful. And I think it was like <laughs> the third attempt that she came in, she just nailed it. And it was almost oh, like a pitch great. invasion. <laughs> we were so happy for her. <laughs> Everybody's like, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was incredible. I love it. She, it was, but what was, I think the other reason it was so, she was so nervous because it was so important to her. Right. Yeah. It yeah, meant right. so much. And everything that she had been working to 
was almost yes. at this point. And, and that was a privilege to be in that room. Which, you know, that's such a, a special point, Michelle, is be yourself. You know, you're in this thing because you're passionate about it. You have committed your life <laughs> to this thing. And, and donors understand that. They appreciate the authenticity. Nervousness is, is not necessarily a negative trait. Well, okay, we've come now to, this is Todd and my is probably our favorite part of the podcast because we ask all of our guests to highlight one of their favorite charities and then we feature that charity as the sponsor of this episode. And so tell us about Milton's Cottage. This is the one that you've chosen. Yes, I chose Milton Cottage because I met John Dugdale Bradley who was a trustee of Milton's Cottage back in 2019 when he did my strategy course and he liked, oh, cool. and he liked number one and two. Okay. <laughs> That's fact, three. He wasn't really into number three. He was really into number one and two. God bless That's him. That's perfect. I love it. So that made him, you know, my instant, an instant fan. Um, no, John is almost 80. I think he's 79 now. And for the last nine years, he's been a trustee of Milton's Cottage and he has worked for, he's volunteered four days a week. And he has done mm. the fundraising, he's helped revamp the displays, it's a, it's a museum, you name it, John's done it, basically. Um, and he also donates uh, uh, on top of that. And pre-COVID, there was an entire army of volunteers that run the cottage that were quite elderly. Post-COVID, the volunteer count has really plummeted. And right. what John's worried about is if I retire, because uh, his retirement keeps getting pushed forward, of course. Yeah, he's always yeah, about to yeah, retire. It never quite happens. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I retire, the model that we are, the model will not be sustainable. And yeah, so yeah. his motto is, we need to be endowment led, not grant fed. And yeah. because he, um, and so he set himself the target of 3.5 million pounds okay. in order to retire. So if I can yeah. raise three and a half million pounds, I would have an yep. endowment fund that would kick out every month, which would pay for everything. And this cottage, you know, this century old cottage is going nowhere. Just to give you a sense of how old this cottage is, when it, um, so John Milton wrote the, his epic poem, Paradise Lost in the cottage, and then it became yeah. a museum. And their uh -huh. first donor was Queen Victoria. Oh, oh that's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. So that, that gives you a sense of how long this thing's going, you know. And now it's like, not on my watch is this, is it going right, down? Is it? Well, there's a lot of pressure there. So John set out to raise 3.5 million. He's already raised half a million. And okay. he's rallied the great and the good of Buckinghamshire. Um, and just a phenomenal fundraiser. Just just phenomenal. He, he just... It. I love it. You know, gets everyone's networks, everyone's address books, and he's gone for it and he's doing a great job. Okay, so we are pausing here to talk with a very special guest. I have Mr. John Bradley from the UK, and John is a trustee of Milton's Cottage Trust, which is the charity that Michelle has asked us to feature for her interview. So, John, welcome. It's good to, good to talk with you. 
Great. Thank you. I really appreciate being able to chat with you. Absolutely. So, John, um, start off by just telling us a little about yourself, you and your family, and where are you based in the UK? Okay. Well, I'm uh, based a long commute from Milton's Cottage. It takes me five minutes to walk or go <laughs> on my bicycle. Very long commute. Uh, we moved here 10 years ago uh, to be close to our family, having okay. through a career lived up in Scotland initially for five years, but eventually fetched up to be 42 years. Oh, my goodness. I uh, love it. Short stay became a very long stay, and it's a long career. But I'm not, you know, Milton's Cottage is about John Milton. I'm not an English graduate. I'm a chemical engineer. Okay. <laughs> and I've also ha have had the great fortune to do an MBA at Stanford. Oh, wow. And, and that was That's a wonderful great. period. It was when Silicon Valley was just starting to stir. Okay. And there was so much I learned from that. It was absolutely fantastic. Anyway, I went to Cambridge as a chemical engineer and then to Stanford to do my MBA. I met my lovely wife, ironically, through reading a book by Brian Hessian. I was really wondering which way should my life go? Uh -huh. And his inspiration, I asked Jan to marry me. And we're now in our 58th year. I love it. That's great. Yeah. And we've been involved in the Episcopal Church up in Scotland and with okay. the Church of England down here. So we've church runs through our life in one way or another. And we're okay. a rural village, about 6,000 inhabitants. And this is where John Milton came. In okay. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. Because there was a great pandemic, the Black Death in London. Mm. And he said to his pupil, Thomas Elwood, find me somewhere I can escape into the country with my wife and daughter. Okay. He came here for 18 months about until the great fire of London. Okay. And he went back into London because he was a London man, born in the city of London, mm -hmm. came out here to be in the country and escape the plague and the authorities. Okay. He, he fell out with the Church of England and Archbishop. Oh, Lord. no. He was a nonconformist. Okay. <laughs> but it's here in this little farm worker's cottage that he finished his great masterpiece, Paradise Lost. When Thomas Elwood met him here, Elwood said, having read it, you've done a fine work here. What have you to say about Paradise Found? Milton made him no answer. Two years later, Elwood meets him in London and Milton shows him another book called Paradise Regained. Okay. Yes. Do you know that's the idea you put into my head at Chalfont, which I otherwise wow. wouldn't have thought of. So there in this little cottage were two of the greatest masterpieces in the English language. And he was totally blind. Mm. Most of this had to be dictated. Wow. Man, extraordinary. I became involved in uh, eight years ago, mm -hmm. and two of us volunteers took over when the last curator retired okay to discover the place was broke oh Literally. yeah no money nothing we had a lovely grade one listed building full of one of the rarest collections of milton's rare works first editions wow going back to 1671 mm -hmm. however nobody had laid aside any money to keep it going Yes. And with it, we have a lovely literary garden, very rare, called Grade 2 Registered, okay. which has all the plants, trees, and shrubs 
mentioned in Milton's work, planted in the garden. Oh, so oh it's my goodness. It's worth a visit in its own right. It's fantastic. Tell us, John, then, kind of what is the vision going forward uh, for the trust? And then what are you hoping in terms of the, the kind of financial viability of the trust going forward? The vision being we do want to preserve this cottage right. and its collection and the literary garden, but we also want to connect with lots of different audiences Lovely. and show Milton's enduring legacy and its social impact. Yes. So, for example, we have a project called Darkness Visible, taken from Philip Pullman, about Paradise Lost, mm -hmm. where we help people who are partially blind or completely blind, as Milton was when he came here, yep. to navigate and understand Milton's work and see his potential because he used, yep. we use creative writing mm -hmm. to help build their self esteem and their confidence. We're doing a great um, project with Guide Dogs for the Blind. Okay. Big, big, big organization in this country. Lots of people come with their guide dogs to be shown around and to hear Milton's story or to yeah. be involved in one of our projects. So we're really big into social impact. And yes. My job, apart from being the treasurer, trustee, is also to raise the funds to preserve this and okay. all the projects in perpetuity. So we've raised half a million pounds, targeting to raise another three million. Okay, so you That's want a total target. of total of three point five million for the, yeah, the endowment, well, and that, yeah. and that gen generates about one hundred and fifty thousand. If it's, you take three percent, right. about one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year, that would right. pay for people, pay for the maintenance, uh -huh. pay for the projects. What what an incredibly fulfilling uh, mission, John. I get little goose pimples just hearing about it because there is such a treasure trove of art and and creativity and writing and poetry that can come from this demographic people who are blind absolutely. Uh, who may not they may not think they have a chance to share their gift but now they can absolutely we yeah. once a year read the whole of paradise lost it takes nearly 12 hours wow 12 books long, 10,600 lines long, but okay. all sorts of people from five-year-olds up to people wow. in their 80s, people who are blind. We have a yeah. we have a Braille copy of Paradise Lost and they read from the Braille script. Now, how can people get involved? They contact me through the okay. website, okay. Which, is, which is miltonscottage.org. Okay. And I'm happy to interface with them uh, over Zoom Delighted to welcome them and give them hospitality. They come here, I show them it. what we're doing, and basically try to understand what their real interest is. Is it a, is it books? Is yep. it architecture? Is it gardening? Is it the social impact projects? And any of these, or all together, wonderfully, if it were, it happened, could yep. be done. I asked the question, Jay Paul, what's yep. the best legacy I could leave for this community? Right. Milton's Cottage is the only building left standing in the world where Milton once lived. That is amazing. Well, so exciting to be able to feature this. I hope and pray that we see lots of people coming to just take a look and, and to think and pray about Absolutely. can they be involved? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, That's right. you, you've seen my the thing that builds my bedrock 
Yeah. If you want me to read Thomas Merton's quote, I can. But Please, yeah, read the full thing. Let's read the full thing, and that will be what we leave people with on this, because that is right in line, John, with the way that Michelle and I like to train people in doing this work. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is a when I when I'm fundraising, which is a lonely journey, I'm often inspired by Thomas Merton when he wrote, Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will apparently be worthless or <laughs> even achieve no result at all. If not perhaps the results you opposite expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness and the truth of the work itself. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. Let's face it. The reality for us is the relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. That's right. And emulate his emulate his life. You can have all sorts of arguments about doctrine. But we've yeah. got an example to follow. We do. We do. John, thank you for joining me today. It's good oh, to be great. I really enjoyed it. Really. Okay. Enjoyed it. And now back to our interview with Michelle Benson. So. Michelle, let's get back. One of the things I always love to ask is give us kind of that top one or two, either the things that we should do or the things we should avoid doing. What are some of your tips? Could be LinkedIn, could be otherwise, but what are your top tips? Uh, my top tip, my number one tip is do not accept an unrealistic target. Okay. Yeah. It's so easy to go, uh, you know, somebody's said we're going to triple the income or we're going to double your target and it's easy to cave and go okay because the second you um take on a target that's too high for the time period that you need to achieve it in you, it brings in all the bad fundraising yeah um, yes the pressure fun, yeah the pre and your your that pressure then gets translated out externally and, mm -hmm. and donors feel it. Todd, you've had, you must have been asked for money before. You can feel the desperation. You can fit. You 100%. Know, it, it comes across, doesn't it? You can't hide it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I would yeah, say. It, it, so, so give us language on that then. Get, get practical brass tacks. The, the CEO, whatever it is, comes, executive director goes, hey, we need, and it's way too high. So what does the, what does the donor rep go? What language would you coach him to say? So. Ultimately, what I would say is you look at, you look at your ex existing income, you look at the history of your income, you look at your pipeline and where, what the stages are, where your prospects are, you look at the potential of your existing donors and what the trade-up is, and you, always, you, always, you can obviously be ambitious, I'm not saying being completely pessimistic, but just be realistic. Because the minute you, if that's your starting point for the year, you're going to be in trouble. So that would be, yeah. that's, that's my big one. My, you know, listen to your donors, listen to mm. your donors. The other, the other do not is do not steward your donors at your internal convenience. So okay. what okay. you're doing is you're saying, I have some donors who I really want to, you know, get a relationship with, really involved with the charity. If it, you know, um, 
if it's slightly inconvenience for you to do that project visit on a Friday and not a Thursday, you don't just, you know, it seems like often stewardship, stewardship for me sows the seed of the next donation. It also, great stewardship gets word of mouth, tongues wagging. You give them something. You can't, if you want people to talk about you and recommend you, then give them something to talk about. Give them something to recommend. So great stewardship is what you're after, not the convenience. It will be inconvenient. Great stewardship is inconvenience. Get over it. You know, look at at the bigger picture. And then my big one, my absolute big one, is the word major donor. And the title major donor fundraiser and the reason i'm anti this title is several reasons number one the word major donor is transactional they are major because they give more money they're not they're not majoring in more empathy or majoring in more volunteering time or they're majoring because they give more money so if you call them a major donor you are you are literally labeling them because of the money they give and obviously, money is a byproduct of you know fundraising. Ultimately, isn't it? People people aren't in the business of giving you money; they're in the business of helping you achieve your impact. So it reduces it reduces the donor and the relationship down to a transaction. And obviously, you're in the business of creating relationships. So that's number one. Practically, it's not great either, because. It doesn't matter how wealthy a person is, they will always know someone who's more wealthier than they are. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you can be as fit as a fiddle, you'll know someone fitter. You could be really yeah. funny, yeah. you'll know someone funnier, right? You can be wealthy, right. you'll know someone wealthier. So when you say yeah. major donor, often the donor thinks of the wealthier person. Of right. course. So right. it's like, oh, you think Fred. And so they, they almost like opt out because they're not correct. Well, that's not me. You know, yeah. you know, yeah. you know like, I'm not, the, you know, so, so ultimately they could, that they kind of don't necessarily see themselves in that title. And then on another practical level, if you put in the, if you search the word philanthropist in LinkedIn, it will pull up wealth advisors and family offices. And if you put the word major donor in, you'll get nothing. Of course, yes, that's You'll such get a great absolutely point. crickets. Yeah. So meanwhile, yeah. your profile, you know, the minute you put your profile in and you say philanthropists, uh, you put the word, um, yeah. I, I don't know, working with philanthropists, the algorithm will pull up a huge load of recommendations for you and start putting, oh, I know, I know what, echo chamber to put you in, woohoo! And it's like, you know, we're off to <laughs> yeah. the races. The minute you yeah. put major donor fundraiser, guess what echo chamber you're going in? So, so again, there's a practical side of it as well yeah. as a, an emotional side of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Michelle, that is so helpful. I think I'm going to immediately Fantastic. go and change my profile. <laughs> <laughs> what are you in, Jay Paul? Do you say major donor I- fundrep? I think I do. I think I say I help major donor fundraisers. So I'm going to have to rethink that. That's really good. That is so helpful. But Michelle, I one thing like you say, now maybe explain this. You say helping them find high value funders. That's a that's maybe a word or a phrase that you have found to be 
helpful. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. because yeah. the reason yeah. I use high value fundraisers because I tend to work with people who are doing corporate philanthropy, yeah. trust funds, and legacies. Yeah. So it's not just yes. the, okay. the philanthropy element. Beautiful, Michelle. How fun to do this with this you. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure to meet you too. All right. So that was wonderful. Um, well, Todd, algorithms. I think that I get a little, I get one of those ice cream headaches over my left eyebrow when I think about algorithms in LinkedIn. <laughs> but Michelle did a really good job of kind of unpacking that a little bit, breaking it down, how you can yeah. put those algorithms to work for you as a fundraiser and even as a funder. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. My, my walk away comment from her was up front of be found, not knock on a closed door. Yes. And how you position and talk and share your story, because in a Christian setting, God's working both sides of the deal. If he's calling yeah. you to this work, he's calling people to fund this thing. How do we draw those two together? That perspective and attitude, um, that was one of my walkaways. That, that was beautiful. And yeah. then the other one I thought was fun, too, on the internal and external pieces, there's uninformed optimism, and then the 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 fundraiser comes in with the informed pessimism. That's <laughs> I'm right. Like, that's, that's 100% that's right. the tension between the internal you know, executive director going, we're going to drive and do this, and then the fundraiser's yes. like, yeah, but we don't have the pipeline right now. We don't have the and relationships that- right now. Your question was so poignant of what do you do? You know, your CEO is coming in with uninformed optimism. And in some ways, that that can sometimes feel attractive and charismatic and exciting, yeah. right? And it's like, well, yeah, let's have a stretch goal. Let's have, you know, faith and all this stuff. The big, hairy, audacious goal. The big, hairy, audacious goal. The BHAG. Get a You bet. And so, but, but to to come in with informed pessimism, you can feel a little bit like a a damp rag, but man, it is an important stewardship role that you play. And here's what I would say to add to it. And I, I don't mean to get litigious or anything about it, but document your informed pessimism with your leadership team, because the truth is they kind of call the shots, right? They, they may come in and, and trump you and yeah. say, sorry, um, we hear what you're saying, but, but document it so that you're able to, for future years, you're able to point back to that and people will self hey, That's guys, right. We talked about this. Yeah. We, we said this before yep. I talked through this, this is where we have, however, we, we grade the process, the pipeline relationships, new connections, making sure we're respecting the process. And go, hey guys, we That's talked right. about this. This is this is why I think there is a turn on the fundraising side is because we don't yeah. go back. We call that in business world the autopsy review. We had a project and now we need to go back and, and look at what we Good. did. The fundraising world, I'm not sure if we yeah. ever do that. Yeah, rarely. Right? Hey, That's right. we talked about this project. I, not to say I told you so, guys, but yeah. listen, we talked about this was yep. I didn't think we could pull it off. Look at the results right. we see. Yeah, we tried. We tried, kind of a thing. That's good. Well, Todd, I have got some some tents to pack up, um, and I I need <laughs> to make sure I remember the pegs and I remember to put them in the proper sack. We don't want to have the reducing yeah. tent story of the the, the <laughs> maker family. Right. Let's let's not have that. I love it, Todd. So good to be with you, bro. 
until next time. You as well, yeah. man. Okay, talk to you later. Sounds good. See you, man. The Breakthrough Podcast is produced by myself, J. Paul Frydenmaker. Thanks to Todd DeKreider for co-hosting with me, and special thanks to Michelle Benson for joining us today. We are grateful to dedicate this episode to Milton's Cottage Trust. Check out the links in the show notes, including how to engage Michelle's amazing coaching and how to support Milton's Cottage. Finally, a big thank you to Lizzie Morales for her assistance on booking guests and coordinating schedules across time zones. And may you all break through to radical generosity in your efforts to invite people to join your cause.